This is your spoiler warning. If you have not seen this movie and you do not want it spoiled for you, this is the time to turn it off. Beyond here, we are not responsible for your actions. And also... Second warning, we are not experts. We do not hold ourselves out to be experts, and these are our opinions. Well, actually... Well, actually... Well, actually... Well, actually... This is all the sports on screen with the Well Actually Sporting Club. Here's your hosts, Maria and Sasky. Well, I guess that's going to be the start of our show because it's kind of too good to cut out. And by that, I mean Maria can sing in tune and I cannot. So I kept very quiet for once in my life just then. But we're singing the F1 theme song, or Maria is, because cars are back. No, motor racing started kind of officially back with the Daytona 24 hours this weekend. Formula One is on its way. And today we're talking about cars or at least someone who drives them. Yes. Um, Today we are talking about Hurley Haywood, which is... If that's his full name, Hurley is a film. <laughs> so so Hurley's the documentary. The main story is around a gentleman whose name is Hurley Haywood, correct? An iconic racing driver from uh, sports cars mm-hmm. in America in the 1970s and 80s. It's a amazing story that we did not know anything about. And no. we like to think we know a bit about cars because we've watched an awful lot of it over the years. Yeah, I mean, I watch a lot. I would definitely say don't watch as much as some people. Um, no, no. Which is not a bad thing. The only I thing I can have. say I watch as much as some people is the Big Bash League because I have watched 67 cricket games this season. And that is the 67 games in the season so far. <laughs> I'm going for 100%. It's more to prove a point to my mother at this point. I started and was like, well, I can't back out now. That was at like game five. So really, life choices here. But we're talking about Hurley today. Before we we get there, obviously, Mm -hmm. we've been away for two weeks, as every episode. For lack of a better phrase, shit happens. And in sport, a lot of shit happens. So the last two weeks... We started Daytona 24 hours, and mm-hmm. by a start, I mean it was yesterday. Yeah, started Saturday, ended Sunday, so yeah. And we intended to watch it, we or did. at least some of it. Um, yeah, we did. We had every intention to watch it, but then I had to move all of my crap from one storage locker to another. The, the best part is we knew that we had to do this and still intended to do the... It just happened. My timeline got moved up, is what happened, and... And when we came home, we just went to sleep. Yeah. It was, like, complete and utter, I must sleep right now when we got home, so. Something I love about Daytona 24, even more than Le Mans, and I love Le Mans. Le Mans is one of my favourite races of the year because it's just insane. Mm -hmm. But I love about Daytona because it's at the start of the year, you get this really weird mix of drivers that you don't see at Le Mans. You have IndyCar. You have NASCAR, you have F1, you have XF1. There's basically everything you can think of, including a guy that tried to drive the wrong way around the track. I mean... NASCAR's finest right there. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot more than I think I realized. I was going through the driver list on Saturday, and there's so many. Obviously, we're not going to list them all, but there's just so many from all 
different disciplines. Obviously, I picked Scott Dixon out to you because the IMSA <laughs> website had him listed as Australian. And, and I was like, what's wrong with this picture? And personally, I will take that because Scott Dixon is amazing. I don't think he wants it. And if they want to give him to us, we'll take him, which is basically Australia's entire approach the country of New Zealand. You have Russell Scott Crow, Dixon, so just... Russell Crowe, Pavlova, all of it. We're taking it. Um, that being said, Scott Dixon was born in Australia. He just grew up in New Zealand in the same way that Ben Stokes, the English cricket player, has a New Zealand accent because he was born there and raised there until he was like 13. Except Scott Dixon is is a fully a New Zealander. And I did feel bad for him because it's such, it happens so often. I've seen so many photos of Mitch Evans taking a photo of his Formula E grid yeah, spot. It's, and it's just the Australian flag. And he's like, what's wrong with it this? It seems like scene? it never happens the other way. Though. No. It's always like. No, because most people can't tell you the difference between the Australian and the New Zealand flag. It's, I would say, unfortunately, it's similar when people think that Canadians are from the US and we get very offended by it. And I'm like, the flags are different. What is the difference like, between the Australian and New Zealand flag? Um, one has one extra star on it. And then there's a different color in the back. There again, I was, I was like, and I was like, <laughs> and they're partially red. It's kind of like the Cuban, I think, and it's either Dominican or Puerto Rican flags. They, they're pretty much the same pattern, but one is a different background color. And I cannot, for the life of me, remember which one is which. <laughs> Um, That's like me all the time where I'm like, okay, one of these is Italy, and then one of these is every other country that uses red, white, and green in just different orders. Like, this one is Hungary. This one is Mexico, because it has a logo in it. Mm -hmm. The 27 countries that use red, white, and blue in various itinerations. There's a reason Australia's sports colours are eucalyptus and wattle, green and yellow. It's because every other country in the world uses red, white, and blue. And at a certain point, you're just like, mm, you know, we're going to look like everyone else. Let's go this ugly thing. And we'll look like Brazil instead. Yeah, but just the, thing is, the thing is, there is very few sports Australia plays that Brazil also plays. <laughs> it's, it's football, and no one in their right mind has ever, ever thought of the Australian men's team as oh, akin to the Australian... Was <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's Australian. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. The Australian women's team can hold a bar to Brazil. Yes, I yes, think yes, yes. we lost the pre the World Cup before the last one. But, you know, mm. it's... I, I, was, I, was just, I was trying to think the last World Cup, but I was like, no, no, there's been two since I moved to Canada. There was the one in Canada, and then there was the 2019 one, which, wow, that seems like another world. But speaking of women's sport, mm-hmm. the NWHL went back or had its Lake Placid tawny this week. But the on-ice action wasn't really where it was. No, the action or most of the drama, if you will, took place off of the ice um, between the league and a sports platform that I'm not going to say out loud because I don't think they deserve. They're like Voldemort. Yeah, like you yeah, don't say it. yeah, yeah, and it's it's also you don't need to say it because yeah. everyone knows exactly who you're talking about. At this about. point, everyone should be well aware, even if you're one of those people that's like, but they raise money for charity. You're like, you know them. It's it's not you know who. It's you know them. <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to note that the NWHL did stand up um, for Soraya Tinker from the Riveters a little bit better than the NHL did for Matt Dumba and the Okay, other. that's an incredibly low bar, though. Yeah, the bar is basically non-existent, so, I don't know, more to come, but now that platform is like, we'll start our own league! I feel like I need to say this because I've, I've had people ask me this before I say this. I know for a very significant period of my professional career, the NWHL and where I worked, the CWHL, were theoretically rivals. I was going to make a joke about someone starting their own league. Someone starting their own league. (laughs) Look, things went down, stuff happens, 
that all aside, the NWHL is what we have left. And there is not a single part of me that wants to see the NWHL fail. The best thing for the game of women's hockey is the NWHL succeeds and becomes profitable and sustainable and all of that. thousand percent. And they're getting 30,000 viewers on Twitch. Amazing. Yeah. As much as I would have loved it to have been us, it's not. And as much as it's frustrating that it didn't happen for the CWHL and that a lot of people that now seem to be paying attention were not at yeah. the time that the CWHL was around. Exactly. But... And that's one of those things, though, that I always think of when people get over hurdles or things get to certain points, it's because it's being pushed and pushed and bit mm-hmm. by bit by bit. You know, the CWHL was a vast improvement on what existed beforehand, and it's an evolutionary thing. But I really want to see them do well. I don't think this partnership, most people didn't think this kind of partnership was really a great idea for the kind of image Mm. that any league wants to portray i don't think you necessarily see you may see players affiliate themselves but you're not necessarily seeing teams and leagues in the same way affiliate themselves knowing the potential risks and the lack of control that they have over the messaging and and that and i say that from a pr communications (laughs) professional standpoint where i'm like you want to affiliate yourself with things you can control as much as possible your worst nightmare as a brand is to have an athlete that goes rogue and this is a whole media conglomerate for lack of a better term Mm. but that's not the only hockey drama this week and and the reality is that we're not going to go into the tony d'angelo situation not because it doesn't deserve to be gone into because it does it's just that it's such a hot mess and we would literally be here all night there is so many layers of just BS from so many parties, from the player himself, from family, from friends, from the team, from teammates, all of it. All we say and is none that... none of it's new. None it's of it's new. ongoing since he was in the junior league. So, I mean... The kind of crux, thankfully, that we have gotten to is, for once, it seems the Rangers have done the right thing and parted ways with him, which potentially should have happened a significantly longer time ago, but the kind of... The nexus of this all coming to a head was that Chris Kreider flattened him. <laughs> and the idea allegedly. of this... Allegedly. Allegedly. Chris Kreider left the lawyer, ice with... you should know that. Allegedly, he flattened him. And the evidence is that he left the ice without bruising and then turned up to the Zoom meeting with bruising. And in the interim, it was reported that he had flattened him. For me, that may not be beyond a reasonable doubt, but on the balance of probabilities, <laughs> I'm going to go with <laughs> I accept. This is the only use, once again, my law degree gets, is, is ridiculous arguments um, like this. So so getting into our topic, yeah. getting into Hurley. Now, I feel like every week we go, well, we feel like we're a bit stupid introducing something. I mean, like, when we saw it here, we did not see this one at the Toronto International Film Festival. No, we did not. Um, but It was at their building, <laughs> but it was not at their festival. So we saw this in 2018 at the Inside Out Film Festival um, in Toronto, of course. And now, what I want people to understand is that when there is a film festival, there is, you know, the Canadian Sports Film Festival, there is TIFF, mm-hmm. there is Inside Out. Maria has a strategy. She gets the catalogue and she highlights every movie and documentary that involves sports. And then right. she sends them all to me and then we agree on which sports movies and documentaries we're going to see. Because yes. she knows I'll agree to go see them. Yes. Other than that, she's on her own. Uh, unless there's a movie with Daniel Bruhl or Gael Garcia Vanel, and then I just tell her what days that she is going with me. 
I try to pick times that work with her schedule, but. And movies that won't traumatize me because you think of the softest person you know, and I am and the softer. The I, most jumpy? I don't know. Yeah, I uh, have not enough pharmaceuticals, serious anxiety, and are not very tough. So any horror movie, any anything, even not scary movies, like just. I'm not okay. I'm not okay, and thankfully she's understood that, and I don't make her watch all of the movies Hallmark makes about royal princes, and we're fine. This is how friendship works. Aye. But Hurley, we're mm. inside out. Um, yeah. We saw it with, as we've been lucky to see, the director there, mm -hmm. and Hurley Haywood himself. Yeah. I think I admit now that I feel like definitely me, but we have been very spoiled to see a lot of these movies with so many of these people in attendance. Before I moved to Canada, I don't think I had been to a film festival. Oh no, I think I had been to one thing, and it was actually a sports movie at a at the Brisbane. Um, I don't know the official name. I think it's the Brisbane Queer Film Festival. It was a sports movie about hockey called Breakfast with Scott. Oh, I said, and it came to Australia, yeah. which we'll have to remember to add to our list, actually. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, I hadn't seen anything. And so came here, and obviously Toronto has it. And mm -hmm. you and, and my other good friend here, Barbara, are both super into that community. And it was kind of like, here, let's culture you up, you bogan from Australia. I'm glad you said it, not me. So yeah, we went to see this film, and personally, I had no idea who Hurley Haywood is, despite him being so famous in... Yeah, His sports car wasn't yeah. necessarily our biggest background, and IMSA is below WEC level, which is what mm -hmm. we were a little more familiar with. Yeah, but yeah, he was there, and we got to hear how this story evolved. Basically, the director was working with Patrick Dempsey on some stuff leading up to As in the lines. Patrick Dempsey, yeah, if you were like wondering. Mick Dreamy, is it? Mick Dreamy? Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> the other one was like, I didn't watch this. But yes, McDreamy, he was that one. Yeah, so they were working together on a project about Le Mans for Dempsey, and then he heard about Hurley's story, they met, and then they pitched it to Patrick Dempsey, who actually produced this film, and voila. Well, so, four years later, voila. So he heard Hurley's story. Yeah. What is the basis of this? What's the kind of reason we're telling this story? Obviously, we know that he's going to be an iconic racer mm -hmm. or he's done... Like, there's that kind of reason about it. But what makes Hurley's story worth telling and what story is are we telling in this? Yeah, so American racing legend, of course. In this film, he speaks for the first time about being gay in the 1970s, you know, crazy macho world of motorsports. So many um, mustaches. And I mean... <laughs> Not even good ones, no, just like no. porn stashes, basically. Yep. Um, and then he also discusses his relationship with his co-driver and close friend, Peter Gregg, and how their relationship started and evolved throughout the years and the impact, I guess, that it had on each of their lives. I think the best way to get people to understand just how iconic Hurley Haywood was within the sports car community is he was talking about telling a story to Dale Earnhardt Jr., yeah. about sitting at Daytona with Dale Earnhardt Sr. and Sr. asking him for advice yeah. on how to race the 24 and how to do this. It was either Daytona or Sebring. It was one of those two. Asking him how to go about it, what he thought. So you have, at this time, like six or seven time NASCAR champion Dale Earnhardt asking him for mm -hmm. the advice, the guidance. And so he was someone that was known. He was yeah. a big deal. 
yeah. in that day. It's funny when I... It still is, but for, you see in the documentary. Yeah, it, it still is, definitely. I think it was funny when that interview, and he was like, you know, this NASCAR champion's asking me for advice, and without realizing that kind of how big of a deal he actually is, because in the film he's so... Humble. Quiet, humble, yeah. and just very unassuming. He's a super unassuming character, but, you know, when you said how big a deal he is, to, to give you context on that, mm-hmm. beyond that story, Holly Haywood has five Daytona, 24 hours, yeah. three Le Mans, 24 hours. Like, just, there was a lot of so Formula crazy. One drivers who have raced Le Mans numerous times who still don't have Le Mans titles. I think Mark Webber's done six or seven Le Mans's without And I think anything. one of these he won in, was his first. Yeah, he won his first Kind of like Nico Hulkenberg, but that's a different yeah, story. Yeah, that's a different story. <laughs> he's won two 12 hours of Seabrook. He's won two IMSA titles. He's won 23 IMSA races. He's won the supercar, the Norleka car. He's won basically everything there is to win in sports car. And then he also raced like 18 IndyCar races, which if you didn't look up, you wouldn't know because they don't even feature in the documentary. It's so like, there's too much to handle. Yeah, basically. He also did all these other IndyCar appearances, but... We can't even touch that because it would just add, I don't even know, another hour to the film. So one of the things that makes Hurley's story, or that they start with in Hurley's story, is that Hurley is an iconic American sportsman. He's a racing driver. And he looks like it. He's like blonde and blue-eyed and Paul Newman. He's like James Hunt got cleaned up for a cereal box in America. It's ridiculous. Young Hurley Haywood is very handsome. Current Hurley Haywood still quite handsome. Yeah. <laughs> also that. Um, yeah, just very clean cut and polite. Um, super polite, super shy. Yeah, polite, shy, but very, very good in a car, basically, is the best way. There was a great quote in the documentary where they talk about he was this this sizzling hot race car driver like how women were after him and his sister was talking about her girlfriends falling in love with him and then being mad at her because he didn't reciprocate their feelings and this but he was this sizzling hot race car driver and on the other hand he was someone who was the complete antithesis of that Mm -hmm. he didn't want the attention he would talk about wanting to throw up before having to do media he just wanted to drive his car and live his life to an extreme kind of way. We, we hear people talk about that, but he was really private. Yeah, he was very private, and if any of you have seen it, you can definitely see that just from how he interviews as well. Yes, he shares a lot of information, but you can see how carefully he chooses yeah. his words and just the way that he presents his story to, not in a curated way, but he's just very quiet and not... He's very intentional yeah. with if, with how he does everything. And also, I don't think he's 100% comfortable with sharing. No, and I think part of that, and, and what we see a lot of the discussion in this documentary, is about what it's like to be where he is now and mm-hmm. to have come through the, the decades and the racing and all of this and what he sacrificed of himself along the way or what he could and couldn't do and his partner could not couldn't do. And all of these things, like, he was such a quiet guy who made this incredible impact. But the story we're getting now is very much, we didn't know that this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Outside of the racing world, we didn't. You know, there may have been some idea and there was that insinuation that there was, you know, knowledge within that community. But he is just so quiet and intentional with, in a way that the narrative he is giving you, mm-hmm. maybe not crafting, but what he is letting you know yes. is very purposeful with Yeah, I think that's an important differentiation. It's what he's letting you know instead of what he's crafting as a narrative. Within this documentary, he does that, or he's able to do that because it's structured 
in, you know, we talked about Maiden earlier mm-hmm. and how much found footage, how much archival footage yeah. it is. It's almost entirely that interspersed with bits of conversation. Mm-hmm. This follows a similar idea, but there is a lot more interview. There is a lot more conversation. And then there is that significant part of the current day Hurley, what his experiences are, what he's doing now is yeah. woven into it. Yeah, I found it really well put together in terms of the editing. and It's, it's very like, tidy in a yeah, sense. Yeah, it's very tidy and the pacing was good in it too. There definitely were a lot more interviews than with Maiden. I think Maiden's footage carries the story more because Maiden's story was visible. Yes. You know? And from this one too, the film is about Hurley. Peter Gregg was a big part of his life mm-hmm. but obviously he's not with us anymore. Yep. So his son was filling in some of those gaps yeah. but you only you have the story from his perspective then but not there wasn't that added element yeah i think with maiden it was a known narrative so mm-hmm. what we're working with is something that everyone could kind of know or could kind of see or that was captured in awareness we're telling the story within hurley of the the blanks the gaps we're filling in things that weren't recorded weren't seen and maiden was also an event right yep. the race itself was versus an event. a career <laughs> versus like a career an entire legacy life. yeah yeah because Hurley Haywood raced for 40 years. I think his first race in this is the mid to late 70s, and his last race is in the... I think he still raced in the 2000s, maybe he did a race or something. Like, his official retirement was was a 40-year span, which is insane. Like, I was like, oh, wow, that's nearly, like, my parents. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no, give them 20 years, but still... (laughs) As an interesting note, you mentioned the the filmography and that Mm -hmm. of it, and we look back at Maiden with the way that it was cut too, because that was a large part of the directorial decisions. Um, The film editor for this is actually the husband of the director, so there is a really kind of lovely synergy in that sense, Mm -hmm. and Hurley talked about the both of them coming to talk to him about wanting to do this piece and why it mattered to the both of them, which was a really nice kind of we want to make this movie, but we want you to trust us because we understand part of this right. journey. Right, and yeah, they understand part of the journey, and obviously I think there's that fear in any biography, surely, but also maybe more in this case where you don't want your story to come out the wrong way, too, yeah, right? And like 100%. he hasn't publicly spoken about this before. His autobiography came out in Feb 2018. Which was like a couple months before. Yeah, where he had actually publicly come out as like bisexual. So I mean, he'd never really spoken about this before. And like you mentioned, the internal knowledge at the track, whatever, but the public didn't know. So I think when this movie came out, there was always going to be a fear yeah. of, oh my God, what are people going to say? There is an interesting point from, from what you just said. He does come out in the biography as bisexual, but mm. throughout the film, the language both he and the movie uses is identifying himself as yeah. gay within mm-hmm. that. So yeah. whether that is because he didn't want to write that or because that is an easier way for him to explain the fact because he is in a 30-year relationship, he is married. It's, it's With basically dogs. Yes, he has very <laughs> cute dogs. There's a lot of very cute dogs and dog padding where I'm like, well, she's gone. <laughs> she stopped paying attention. There's a, there's a dog there. This this movie it tries to do a lot, it right? Does. It has and, a lot to say. And none of the things are unimportant. No. They are all very valid, serious, big parts of the story. It's just that for us to go through each of them and give them the, the justice they deserve, mm-hmm. we'd be here for hours. 
We'd be here for hours, but the film didn't go into all of them yep. either, so I think that it gave kind of you helps a lot of in a way cliff notes. Um, in yes, a sense. exactly. Um, it touched on a lot of things, but didn't really yeah. fully explore them. So the thread of the movie is the idea of Hurley's career and his battle with himself, or not necessarily his battle, but what his life was like trying to conceal certain parts of his identity and then how he did things and how he lived that life and to be fair there was parts of his life where he was reasonably open for what we know of the 70s 80s and and so forth Mm -hmm. particularly within racing but there is the offshoot stories there is the story of his friendship with peter greg his his crew driver there is this narrative of mental health within that Mm -hmm. and and Peter's unfortunate death and and things along those lines and all of those interweaving in a way back into the decision to be public about this. Yep, 100%. And I think, like you mentioned, his friendship with Peter Gregg, and I feel like in the film at one point, he mentions that Peter just straight up asked him. So Peter knew. Peter knew. But again, there were certain people, so there was that level. But that was only the much. I think think from it you get, like, that was the one thing Peter asked. And he was kind of curious about things, but it was never maybe as outright again as a... Yeah, and then certain people knew the track, and it was... It felt surprising to me in a way that people did know back then, that he did tell people, and just even if they weren't fine with it they didn't make a big deal out of it yeah or Or as far as the story that we have been given yeah you know because i feel like today that would be on twitter and like yeah in parts i was thinking about that there is that balance between obviously the, the culture nowadays is more accepting of a lot of these things there's obviously still a long way to go in a lot of ways but we have this always on society we have the accessibility of social media you see someone in a bar you see someone going somewhere you see someone eating dinner with someone if you're known enough those things are all accessible they're all ownable by the public you just have to think of the amount of situations you have seen or dramas you have seen with mid-level nhl players and below because someone was there who saw someone who was doing something who was doing this and that and you're like you can't have those things in the same way. Yeah, or when someone even posts a screenshots from a conversation. That yeah, can... screenshots. Yep, screenshots, <laughs> Tumblr shots, <laughs> Tinder shots. Mm-hmm. You know, every form of... <laughs> I mean, we can edit this out. Luke, but it's... No, no. <laughs> that, that, the noise you just heard was me being like, oh, my professional career <laughs> had come to the peak of having to be like, Oh no, <laughs> who's done what now? I just remember there was a drama and yeah. The other noise you hear is me like gulping down gin. Anyway, yes, we have gin. It's yeah, delicious. yeah, we have gin. I had to remember to put it on the carpet so you don't just hear me clacking it against the table here. Um, but we talked about it at the start of this. Patrick Dempsey produces this, mm-hmm. but he's also in it. Patrick Dempsey has, I think they're called Dempsey Wright Racing, but he also has Dempsey Proton Racing, and I believe they still race Porsches, like that's their main car, that's who they work with. So you actually see Hurley and and Patrick Dempsey, he's acting as a bit of a mentor, and he has for years, you see that there's a pre-existing relationship, and it's kind of funny because like Patrick Dempsey is full heart eyes in awe (laughs) of both him as a driver and him as a person. Mm -hmm. But he plays a really interesting part in this because there isn't a narration to this. No. But Dempsey kind of comes in and provides a narration in the sense that when they cut to him, to his thoughts, comments, his interviews, it is very much laying the groundworks for what you're seeing, Mm -hmm. the nature of what motorsport looked like at that time and all these things. 
and then inadvertently, intentionally posing the questions they want you to consider with what you've just seen or what you're about to see. Yeah, and all doing it with really great hair. Oh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> no, there is like three or four dudes in racing. There's him, there's Alex Lynn, there's at least another Imagine one or two. Not Sebastian Vettel, <laughs> whose hair is just immaculate every time. They pull a helmet off, it's immaculate. They run 20 kilometers, it's immaculate. They're like... I don't know, sweating in a gym, going Carlos to dinner, it's a Carl Sainz is probably also Carlos in that category yeah. too. You're just like, how do you, I think I have decent hair, and I'm like, it's a disaster 95% of the time anyway. They don't even try, it's a dude thing, I swear. Anyway. And that's eyelashes. Very Yeah, yeah, you're like, mm-hmm. I spent that much money on those. mascara, you don't need those. <laughs> this is, the, yeah, this is like girls who watch sports <laughs> program are like, I hate you, look at those eyelashes. But... We spoke about how there was all these different narratives, but the, the real one and the thread to it that is is where we're looking or what we have been looking at is this story of his identity mm-hmm. and him being, you know, a closeted gay man during these times and how he's come out of that now. And it's this real story of someone who he knew who he was. He was never at any point in this do you get the feeling that he didn't know. He always knew exactly who he was. He always knew that he was gay. There was never a question. He never kind he of... Wasn't, he never struggled with that part of it. He never communicated an existential crisis mm-hmm. about it. He always knew. His sister knew. I believe his parents knew, but they weren't chill with it. Um, at, at, at that time, I feel it was one of those things where his parents knew and just nobody talked about it. But we don't see him or we don't have him recount this grappling with it. He doesn't have, he got married and then unmarried. Like, he doesn't have any of that narrative. He always knew, but he was always kind of true to that in a sense. But it was the kind of story about he knew who he was, but this industry and this sport that he had chosen to make his life in mm-hmm. was just so contradictory to that image that was conveyed at that time and still to this day is really conveyed as being that of a gay man's. Yeah, I think definitely in that instance, it's also that whole thing where you have the artist persona or the sports person's persona mm-hmm. and then that person yeah. is You have Lady Gaga different. versus exactly. who yeah. she And in this... Like you said, not a super welcoming environment for anything other than super macho dudes at that time, and somewhat even still today. And while he said, my core people knew, but he was also indiscreetly warned to, like, don't mix business with pleasure, like... Yeah, Don't something that would only have, track, would like, only have ever been things. said to someone who wasn't a straight white man. Yeah. Like, no one cares if you bring your personal life to the track if your personal life is within the realms of what they find acceptable and exactly. unproblematic. Yeah. No. And again, not saying that because we hate men. Oh my god. Just <laughs> like... I, I love the part where we feel the need to defend that every time because we're like, we, we don't. It's just we're, this is true. It's, this yeah, is there's a fact. so many situations of that happening whether it's women, you know people of black, color, yeah, black sexuality people, sexuality, all of that type of thing um, and it, it, yeah, it falls under discrimination, workplace harassment but in this situation you can't like, but, and, but no that's the thing, it's, you know so many of these things, and I say this to people all the time you know, I've told stories to people about various things and they're like, that's illegal. I'm like, yeah but things are only illegal if you have enough evidence to prove it mm. and the willingness to go through that process and take that risks and maybe get something out of it, but you're never going to get what you were actually trying to it, No, it's just, and the process that you're going to be dragged through is so just, much worse yep. than just, you know what, uh, moving on. Yep. It really sucks, but, like, whatever. There was a really good line in this about the idea that racing and racing car drivers, and this is completely true, and it still works on everyone nowadays but it's 
they're this kind of like quintessential male machismo kind of things, even if they are all very not that. Like, Charles Leclerc is the prettiest person I think I have ever seen. Maybe not the brightest, but definitely the prettiest. And you're like, okay, there's not a single thing of me that goes, wow, that's macho. But it's still that idea that driving at these speeds, that death-defying, that kind of attitude. Lando Norris is not macho. No, no, not at all. Like, yeah, I was like, Lando Norris is more akin to Baby Yoda than anything but else. Yes, you're 100 correct. You know, but, but it's this idea, particularly, particularly in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. you know, we see what a racing driver is nowadays and what our idea of that is. And it has shifted a lot because of society and those things. But the 70s and 80s, even in our mental image, that racing driver is the mustache, the America, the, you know... They're K.K. Rosberg. They're K.K. Rosberg, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically my mental picture is uh, it was actually 100% K.K. Rosberg. But you're right when you said that he had been inadvertently warned. Mm-hmm. And they do ask someone in it, did he think that he would, like, like Hurley had lost sponsors or suffered discrimination because people knew or this and that. And, and the, the person was like, do you want evidence? Do you want for certain? No, I can't say for certain. He's like, but do I think so? Yeah. yeah. He's like, of course he did. He's like, I don't have the receipts. This mm-hmm. isn't the screenshots error. <laughs> and even nowadays, most people are not dumb enough to put that in writing. Mm-hmm. But... It cost him. You know, it was known enough that people knew enough to say, no. Yeah. We don't, we're, we're, we're a if bit. If you think that Kaepernick is still getting cost sponsors and basically his whole career for doing what he did, kneeling in the national anthem that should not be played in front of a game. I agree. Of two clubs of the same country. Anyway, there's a hun- there's no way. So I was going to say, side note on that front. If I said to you, what is the only sports league I have still seen in the world who is doing a moment silence and kneeling at this point in everything? The WNBA. It is the Australian cricket league, right? I mean, I get awkward not because I think it's a bad idea, but because they're like white commentator dudes tend to explain over the top of it and they're trying really hard and they I don't know how well the dot points they were given were because they're trying but it's like a little bit and then the wording of the way that the announcer in the background says it is a bit awkward but I was like good on you guys yeah. like the whole season there's no they didn't just kind of draw a point pretty mm-hmm. much I was like excellent and yelling and cricket pads is looks quite complicated <laughs> But yeah, statistically, it's not possible. No, he was not. No, 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 no. Didn't of course, in some sort of loss. In the same way as something. racing drivers don't get discriminated against for being women nowadays. Yeah, I know. Both of us just kind no of was comment. like, <laughs> I, I, I think the, the other one was like, I got a note here, and it just says the dude, the driver being quoted, "fuck that guy." When you watch the documentary, you'll know which person I'm talking about. But he talks about like he gives almost conditions Mm -hmm. in the way that he thinks Hurley should come out or the way that he should handle his coming out in the sense that he's like if he comes out and he's a militant gay activist that's gonna hurt him and if he comes out and he becomes more famous because he's gay I don't want to see that he's like he just shouldn't come out and get on his soapbox and you're like what's the point then have you met Hurley yeah yeah I was like because he's not like that anyways this guy does talk or, or Hurley talks in this documentary in the idea of being on a soapbox, he is clearly on a soapbox in the sense of trying to communicate his story mm-hmm. for good. As but he's not yelling. A person that differs from the norm, yeah. you automatically become that representative, even if mm-hmm. you don't necessarily want 
to be or are fully yeah. comfortable with that. But yeah, you're right. And He's not going about it in a loud... Hurley Haywood could have gone for the rest of his life without making this book or this documentary and mm-hmm. lived exactly pretty much as he had or gradually. Like, he did talk about everyone in racing nowadays really knows. They know who yada yada yada. But there's a great story in it about people he had met and his story helping other people and his desire to make sure that other people don't feel mm-hmm. alone or don't feel unsure in both racing and, and life in general. Yeah, just... And that's really, it's a message more of concern and care than any form of soapbox grandstanding. And I think, again, a lot of people that do share that they differ from the norm of society, um, even though they aren't going out of their way to grandstand about anything, at the end of the day, they really want to do whatever they can to help the next generation of somebody who might be like them or someone even in the same generation who's struggled all their life with the same type of situation that they can... It's really like, unless it's Bella's talk day where I'm fully just like, get me my soapbox. This is my one day of a year of being really loud for the whole day and then I'll just go back to my corner. That's a lie. Wait, you're not loud all the other days. Yeah, shh, shh. I'm particularly aggressive on that day. There's a lot of, like, Twitter threads (laughs) on that day. But... I, it was very like, fuck this dude. You don't get to tell him how he does anything. Mm-hmm. It's not about you. And also, as you said, have you met this dude, right? Yeah. Like, it's... I think, you know, racing is a very kind of open fraternity. We're constantly hearing stories about this person knows this person and that and all of those kind of things, and they're very supportive. But, like, some of the bits of it, you're like okay, there's a lot of old school drivers that were in it who were basically like, yeah, we always knew, we didn't really care. He could drive a car. Yeah, we didn't, it was not really important to us. And then there's a couple who are like, oh, well, you're like, you don't care that much, but you're still, like, not... They always tell on themselves. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. But they did have a good point, though, that, as I said, drivers are an open community. They're very much a lot more concerned about you being a good person and you a good driver. That's really... Yeah, they don't really care if you... And I think the line Hurley uses is, like, gay, straight, pink, blue, whatever. Yeah. But it was his concern, and I think every athlete that we think of who may be faced with this decision, it's the fans mm-hmm. that is the, the concern in that sense. Yeah. There's always going to be people that are unhappy or think that you've suddenly changed and become a different person and aren't portraying family values or whatever the case may be. Don't um, we love that line, family values? But... Uh, yeah, that's the main concern. I don't know. You started laughing and threw me off. I started laughing <laughs> because in the middle of our conversation, just then about a very serious topic, the West Wing theme song just came from downstairs beneath us, and it threw me too for a moment there. What if the, I, I guess stars is the wrong term, but the unassuming sweethearts of this story is Hurley's husband, mm-hmm. who um, he met in 1979 in a gay bar in Jacksonville, Florida, which is, and, and it's a very cute story. Like Hurley was, he was like, basically Hurley was like super in love with me from the get go. And I was like, I don't know anything about racing and I don't really care, which is great. He still doesn't care apparently. Yeah. And I think though that sometimes for athletes or people of different sporting disciplines, that is actually more attractive because yeah. you don't come home to someone who's a massive fan, even though, yes, you might be excited to talk to them. You're happy for them to do well, but... Yeah, but you don't want to hear... You don't want to spend all day competing or whatever and then coming home 
to hearing yeah, like, and to that's talk what, more about that's it. That's what they spoke about. He's like, you know, we don't come home and talk about work. Most couples probably don't come home and talk about work because no. they don't want to talk about work. No. That's, you know, what, what They just we... want to eat chips and lay on the couch. Maria is speaking for herself <laughs> in this situation. 95% of our friendship is just you being like, can someone feed me chippies? Chippies. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. But there is some interesting discussions in this. Obviously, he has been with his partner for many years, for mm-hmm. nearly his entire career. His Daytona wins all of these things. But his husband can't be there no. because this is not acceptable. This is not, you know, done. And also, his husband doesn't want to cause a scene because he's like, I don't want the attention. Hurley doesn't want the attention. We don't want this awkward situation. Mm-hmm. So... If I'm there, I'm fading into the background. And just like another fan. Yeah. Like a regular so he, I think Holly does suggest at one point prior to this, he had brought a boyfriend to the race and it just hadn't gone well. So you're like, well, okay then. Yes. This is not the first time at the Rodeo. But there is a moment in it where his husband talks about watching him win his last Daytona win, which mm-hmm. was 1994, I think. But having to watch it from the other side of the chain link fence because he wasn't in there. He couldn't go in there. He wasn't part of it. You know, and if he'd been a woman, he would have been his wife. He would have been basically carried out to him and celebrating all of that. But instead, he stood on the other side of a fence pretending he didn't know him. Yeah, when we were watching it, it made me think of when Simon Pagano won the Indy 500 and Norm got to be up there with him. Yeah, yeah. He took his dog with him. <laughs> and then I was like, oh. Yeah. yeah. That sucks. Yeah. Nothing against Norman. But, yeah, no, yeah. completely. Yeah. Norman's pretty cute. Norman is cute. Yeah, um, Sam Pagano's wife, also badass. Um, Anyone that rolls into the Indy 500 and then sells pro-choice shirts out the front of it gets my vote for just, <laughs> like, balls of steel. <laughs> yeah, but there's that situation of him just watching through the fence and being there but not really being able to take part as a normal couple would. That really stood out to me and it's one of the more poignant moments of the film that still reminds you that there's still so far to go yeah there's still so far to go and and i want to say there's still so far to go in men's sport Mm -hmm. you know women's sport is in some ways a different beast there are other issues within that kind of space itself but it is a different beast in that sense but he talks about they they talked to his husband about this. Steve. I was like, pretty sure it was Steve. Steve talks about the idea that he knew that he wasn't comfortable and all of that. And then they go to Hurley and be like, do you know like how he felt about this? And he's like, yeah, we've had this conversation. That error was hard. I would have loved him to be there. Of course I would have loved him to be there. At this point, if we're in 1994, they've been together for 15 years at this point. Of course he does. But he knew it couldn't happen and it would be awkward and cause problems. This was just something that they had accepted. Mm -hmm. They viewed it as sad and hard, but they didn't seem to stick on it. It didn't define them or his experience with racing or their experience with racing together or any of that. Yeah, I think um, what's interesting that Steve also said, separate from that incident, is that at work he doesn't, talk about Hurley, doesn't discuss him. So on that level too, on his end, there is also that unspoken, yep. almost like don't ask, don't tell yep. kind of position where they just, they're happy, they want to live their life and not let how other people view them. They're not going to let the haters get them down. Yeah. He goes in, does his job. And he works at an LGBT out. organization, I believe he said. Yes. Within it. It's just what he's used to, his persona. 
I, yeah, I think, too, depending on, while Hurley didn't struggle seemingly with mm-hmm. any of that, we don't know Steve's we story, don't know his backstory, journey. and that the era that they were in, a lot of people were deeply closeted and still, to this day, yep. may not feel comfortable discussing Things have changed, thing, but it doesn't mean that they about, have been able to... Yeah, or you're just a naturally private person anyway. Yeah. Like, I don't share my feelings. Yeah, no, I'm aware of that. Just... Yeah, whereas I'm like, hello. I have feelings. <laughs> Vomits feelings. <laughs> there was not a single person who is, for the most part, ever had to think, what is she thinking? Because they've been told or they can see it on my face. Because if I'm thinking something, I do not have a poker face. I have resting bitch face if I'm somewhere else, but no poker face. There is a good line in it from Hurley, though, that when you're pushed aside and you don't knock down the barriers that are in front of you, mm-hmm. you pay the consequences. And these were the consequences he paid, that they both paid in this. I think the kind of lasting image I have of explaining how racing affected their relationship or how it affected Hurley in regard to their relationship is the lady who tells the story about the changing rings. Yes. Or the mm-hmm. ring changing hands. Yeah, left to right, right to left. Just depending on his setting and where he was, he yep. would wear his ring on a different hand. To me, it was a way to protect... <laughs> well, we can't Rude. cut that out, but I didn't um, realize that was on. <laughs> anyway, as I was saying, it's a protection method, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was one of those things where it's such a small detail, mm-hmm. but it says so much about... The, the way he protected them mm-hmm. or, or what they had and that idea that racing driver Hurley or, like, working with... And he's, he's not racing at this point anymore. He is teaching, he is coaching, he is mentoring, he's all of these kind of things. He's an ambassador for this. Yeah. He works with IMSA, he works mm-hmm. with Porsche, all of that. When he's professional Hurley, he's not married. Mm-hmm. When he's with his friends, with his family, that he's... Like, that's the the... The, the kind of messaging of it, which mm-hmm. is really poignant and, and a little heartbreaking in that sense. They do do a good job of, of conveying the, the visual of how he plays with, with them and the kind of fidgets and that kind of things between the two of them. The reason I thought of it as a prote- method of protection too is because I think so many women have a story of, oh, I wear a fake wedding ring. To like, I have two of them. You know what yeah. I mean? So people don't talk to you yeah. when you're in certain situations. And so for him, he's also Did protecting... you have a fake one for one of your front desk hotel? jobs? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm sure you had a fake sure one for a front desk, desk job at a hotel. Um, yeah, it's a method of protection yeah. and a very subtle one. The, the only women in this documentary was his friend, mm-hmm. his sister... Someone who had been like Miss Camel, Light, LT. Oh, yeah. It was a cigarette brand who was also his friend and the PR person who was the lady who tells the story who had noticed it. Mm. Or someone said to her, just watch him, you'll see that he changed his yeah. ring changes. And and you were listen, people noticed that and were like it, it was something that was picked up upon, but it's told beautifully within the, the film mm-hmm. itself. Certain people definitely picked up on it. I guess, aside from the story of Hurley coming to, not even terms with, but like his journey with being queer in this time frame and his relationship and all of that. And him being comfortable sharing his story. His comfort, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. We have the narrative across to the side just of his relationship uh, with his co-driver, and how they developed what happened in the end. And we get this story of competing within a team, mm-hmm. this idea of being, you know, closer than brothers, but then 
as one got success and one got older and had issues and this narrative is spreading apart and then the story of his mental health coming through and, and what happened there. They do a really good job of capturing that and, and weaving it into the story of um, his sexuality without detracting from it. Yeah. And they do loop back at the end there with that common thread of both of them struggling to maintain this image of perfection. Yeah, their athlete persona. Yeah, and, and in different ways. One is struggling with his mental health and the other is struggling with his identity and, and sexuality and, and that presentation. And then it comes back around to that idea at the end, which you see wrap up the whole film itself, that the story really is about how many problems can be fixed and helped and changed by people talking about them. Yeah, just by opening up and sharing, even though it's extremely difficult to do, no matter whether it's mental health or your sexuality or anything else, even, like, discrimination that you've experienced. But I thought it was really neat how... Because Peter played such a big part in his Mm -hmm. life, really he got Hurley started in racing. And then how it traversed to Hurley eclipsing him in Mm -hmm. a way because he was willing to race the prototypes and all of that type of stuff. Yeah, which you will find out in this. The prototype goes from racing a 300 horsepower Porsche to a 1200 horsepower prototype. And when you take the skin of it off, it's just like a death trap, basically. Like, Mm -hmm. you crash it, you're dying. That's how it is. Yeah, I think that them talking about how important it is to open up and share. That's also why that story of him giving that interview to that high school kid who was struggling with his own sexuality and everything and Hurley talking to him is so poignant as well. As a semi-side note to this, on the point of dispelling stereotypes, in the story they do talk about the fact that Peter Gregg had stopped taking his lithium and at that point, things had gone downhill. I would like to tell you, 2021 lithium is a hell of a lot better than 1970 or 80, whatever. And it's great, and don't stop taking it because it's a bad idea. I'm going to say that one from experience. Just take what they give you. <laughs> Generally, it's a good idea. He was, at the time, diagnosed with manic depression. Which yeah, today which we now we know is bipolar. Yeah, and I think the line was, he thought he was too smart to yeah, be dictated yeah. to by medicine he, or controlled and, by and, medicine. And I will say... If there are every single person, I think, who has a bipolar diagnosis, and I know I have been there, being like, I don't need this, I'm smarter than this, yada, guess what? No, you're not. Sometimes you just need the wires to be rewired so that you have a little bit of a chance, Mm -hmm. and that's really what it is. But that being said, lithium in the 70s and 80s is just, it's a trip, and it's why it has the reputation it does nowadays. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a whole new ballgame. Yeah. You know, which I actually had to learn because I had that mentality of, you know, Peter Gregg of this is awful because it often it, mm-hmm. it was. And, and then you, knows he might have known that too and been yeah. like, I don't want that. Yeah, yeah. And or he's taken it and had a negative experience mm-hmm. with it and being like, I don't want to make this compromise. And then unfortunately it ended up how it did. Nowadays, people are having to actually unlearn the attitude of what that drug means because our mentality is still 40 years behind about what it was. Yeah. So I'm telling you, lithium, pretty good. <laughs> from personal I've life, ex- personal life experience from the last two years of my life, can highly recommend. <laughs> Definitely more sane. Excellent. I love it. But he does, he comes back to this, and as you said, the high school student that mm-hmm. he had spoke to, and his mum called him, and, and that, when he says his mum called me, and yeah, like my first thought later. was like, 
oh no yeah like oh no and then you know she says to him you saved my kid's life Mm -hmm. and and that's a big thing to hear from a mom he says and and you know you know that i know that we can just imagine what that is like saying like hey thanks yeah but he talks about then and he references back to peter that these are people that could be saved by talking if they have the right tools he knew what he was seeing when he spoke to this student he didn't know what he was seeing when he spoke to Peter because they weren't educated about that. They didn't know the warning signs in the same way. I think that when he talks about that high school student's story and how the mom called him a couple of years later, you could almost see that he was, when he referenced back to Peter's moment where he was like, hey, what are you doing tonight? And Hurley was like, oh, I have plans. Then the next day he was getting calls that like, oh, Peter had gone and committed suicide. That it was almost a feeling of guilt, even though yeah. there was nothing that he yeah. could have done. He, he it's says that just he's the like, not knowing. He's like, if I had gone to the basketball with him, it wouldn't have made a difference. It would he had he'd made up his mind. Yeah, it might have happened at a later date. But, but it was yeah. Yeah, because there wasn't that communication and that openness that yeah. you know, exchange. I think to loop the whole story into its final form, which makes it sound vaguely like a Pokemon, which it isn't. I know how you feel about Pokemons. They ask Hurley about the reasons for this. And in the last couple of minutes, it's not a soliloquy. He's there talking through his real basis of his feelings. And he's saying, you know, where he'd been silent in the past, he's trying to say it's okay now to say something. Mm-hmm. He feels that it's okay and he feels it's his time and his responsibility to give back. And it's about that trying to give a positive attitude to show that if you feel like this, if you identify as this, look at all of these things that people who are gay like you can do and one of them is a racing car driver. There is nothing that stops that, that and we are now evidence. And I want to say it's a reasonably standard concept in a lot of these kind of things, but it doesn't make it any less important every time it's someone's narrative. I think, like you said, it should be a reasonably standard concept. However, it still is not. It's a standard concept in the idea of when we hear these narratives of someone who is an athlete who's come out and the reasoning Mm -hmm. is very familiar because it's a necessary thing because it isn't there. Mm -hmm. Because society is like, what's up? Yeah. Like, and chill. Also, when you think about it, it's statistically impossible for so many leagues to exist and everyone to be straight. I feel it's statistically impossible for there to be an NHL team without at least one person, but yeah. Silence. I was like, I'm just gonna <laughs> sip my drink over here. I think a good note for us to wrap back around the end to. It, it talks about from a, his friend at the end talks about from a life perspective mm-hmm. that it's not always about winning the race, which is something that's practically impossible to convince any racing car driver of ever. They're not great at that. But she talks about it's it's not always about winning the race. Sometimes it's just about having this happiness mm-hmm. in your life and then being able to truly be yourself and to be who you are. And what we see in this at the end is that he hasn't been unhappy. No. He has had this great life. He has someone who he deeply loves, has been together for a very long time. They talk about getting married, what it meant to them to prove who they were and all of those things. But for him to be able to tell the story now mm-hmm. and to share that, there's a bit of a look that he gets when he does it. That on you're his like, own terms, too. On right? his like own terms. I think you know? one of the most important parts of all yeah. that, too. 
there is that look and and if you you watch the the documentary you will know what we talk about when we say that where you just see what it means and the difference it it makes to mm-hmm. being like it's it's a little bit like breathing a little bit easier yeah. even if you didn't think there was going to be a thing it's just that little bit yeah and that's not to say that it has been super easy for him or in his partner this whole time no. i guess at this point where he's at in his life it's been worth it and he feels that relief or that comfort and that happiness that he can actually share his story now without a repercussion so 10 out of 10 would recommend that yeah. being said I feel like there isn't really anything that we watch on here that we wouldn't give 10 out of 10 would recommend because that is in part you know why we have selected them because we enjoyed them and also I have terrible standards of judging anything so I think everything's 10 out of 10 I wouldn't say 10 out of 10. <laughs> 10 out of 10 is my default setting. Well, yes. I enjoyed it. It's a tidy hour 20 Tidy minutes, is a good way to put so... it. It's not made in. Like... No. If you're looking for an intro into more about his story or even the racing disciplines that he took part in or that type of thing, or if you're a Patrick Dempsey fan, whatever, check it out. It's a good hour and it, 20. It's a, yeah, and... it's a very tight, yeah. very clean, very easy to watch documentary. To watch. Comparing it to maiden or forever pure there's a different level of emotional anguish and distress and and that in it because it is Mm -hmm. very different in that sense and drama there's not a lot of ocean peril in this or people yelling outside your house yeah yeah bombs under your car yeah any of those things but you know it's a really enjoyable movie you know Mm -hmm. watching it the second time there's a lot of things i had forgotten or bits that i noticed that i may not have noticed the first time and yeah it's a good hour and 20 minutes of my life yeah we watched it on google movies i think it's available on amazon prime in the u.s as well so check it out and so i was gonna say so from the third episode at your house because i am still actually living in maria's basement because we are still on a stay-at-home order i think our vaccine's supposed to come in 2027 (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so basically i'm moving into the basement here and living with maria's parents and her family i'm gonna make lots of episodes of Mm -hmm. us talking about sports documentaries and sports movies we're gonna have to add breakfast at scott to that list We can't tell you what's next because we actually haven't looked that far ahead. No, um, we like to keep it a surprise. We you like to keep it a surprise to both you and, and us. ourselves. What are you doing with your life? It's a surprise. Ta-da! <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> um, so we'll figure that one out later. But for another episode, and big shout-outs to anyone who is still listening to us, including Thank anyone you. whose last name is the same as mine, I appreciate your efforts. I mean, they could. that doesn't mean necessarily they're your family. No, true, true. If you aren't my member of my family and your last name is Stuart, please <laughs> let me know because I also appreciate you. Maybe you're distantly related. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are you Scottish? We're all related at some point, really. Yeah, no. Ah, my people. But for another round of all the sports on screen, I'm Saski. I'm Maria. And we will see you... Soon. Dos semanas.